Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle aged warriors, Chris Samino and Rick Summers. Oh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> oh, I, could, I could not sing. I know I shouldn't. I don't know what. To, it must be the holiday spirit I have. Drinking a lot of holiday spirit. A lot of eggnog, yeah. Uh, loaded <laughs> eggnog at that. But no, I guess it was the snowfall the other day that kind of, uh, it, it, it at least gave me a little sense. And I know we were talking about that earlier. It gave us a little sense of the holiday because it's pretty hard to find these days, the spirit, so to speak. Yeah. Welcome to show number 36 of Middle Age Warriors, getting older by the moment. Gee, thanks. Thanks for that friendly reminder. <laughs> the alternative is rather bleak. Remember this what I said early on? Yes, Woke up on true. the right side of the dirt. This is very true. But um, I was listening to uh, an interview on Howard Stern the other day. Uh, George Clooney was on. And yeah. he was he's approaching 60, as am I. And you've already hit that wonderful mark. And he's like, can you believe this? And he goes, you know, I was lamenting to my dad the other day about middle age. And he goes, my dad stopped me and said, uh, middle age, 60? How many 120-year-olds do you know? And it's just, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's what kind of even hits, hits us even harder, I guess, conceptually with the number. But he was saying something that I thought was interesting. You know, you're 60, I'm about to be in the spring. And I don't know, in my head, don't you? And he said, don't you still sort of feel like a child somewhere in your head? Like, did, you, did we ever really get past being children? Well, I will tell you this. I remember my father's 60th birthday, and he seemed a lot older than I feel I am at mm -hmm. the same age. And I think that's just who we are. Yeah, I think generationally, the, our perception of not only the world around us, but ourselves is much younger. I, I think of my grandfather. Uh, he lived in the apartment upstairs from, from the house I lived in growing up. And I, he passed away at 64, 65 years old. And I thought he was an old man. He wore a hat and trousers, you know. <laughs> trousers. Yeah, yeah, you know, up, up to his, just below his nipples. And it was, <laughs> and it was you know, and then... You know, my dad was like 80 and wearing sneakers and jeans. So, it, it, and little by little, it's, it's evolving that way. I have a question for you. When do you stop wearing pants and they become trousers? Yeah, I don't know if the term trousers is actually used anymore. <laughs> well, that's like uh, trousers, the galoshes. Remember those? Galoshes. You know, galoshes, you know. So, so it's those are some funny old school terms. But I know, really. But going to the, to the point about, you know, in fact, well, I'll keep in the holiday vein for now. We're kind of all over the place with this one. But uh, I was watching It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm noticing in all of the scenes, every man was wearing a hat, no matter when and where they were. Every man had a hat. And that's an industry and a fashion that really is just, I mean, we have caps now. But men, right. men don't wear caps. Oh, they do here and there, but not in a, in a social sense. Chapeaus. Yeah, yeah. No, it used to be big business. Yeah, it, it's incredible. Uh, I know I, I worked, one of my first jobs, television jobs, was in the Scranton area, and there was a big hat-making company there. And Absolutely. It was an industry that brought and, and, and gave so many jobs to that area. But let me go back, by the way. Uh, let's talk about holiday movies. I kind of got in the mood the other night. I had some time uh, during the snowstorm, and I was going back to some of my favorites, and It's a Wonderful Life is, is one of my favorites. And first of all, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen it? Seen it what? Have you ever it's seen the movie? Life. It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. I think I've seen bits of it. 
Really? I don't think I've ever watched it start to close. There's another person. Now, my girlfriend, Edme, the first time I brought it up, and, and she told me, I've never seen it. I'm like, what? I was like, I, I don't even know if I can I, be with you any longer. So she used the excuse, of course, she's, well, she goes, I grew up in Puerto Rico, you know, It's a Wonderful Life wasn't exactly, a, you know, one of the top movies they went to or saw. But then I was watching the Today Show a few days ago, and apparently Dylan Dreyer also said she had never seen it before, and they were, they were getting on her case to that point. But now I ask you the same question. Now, I think it's an amazing movie. The job that Jimmy Stewart does in that movie is so incredible, and it's, it's much, it's not a Christmas movie. It wasn't really a Christmas movie. Uh, it's a movie about life, and, and it's a movie about the importance of each one of our lives, even when we don't realize it. And his life was all about giving and giving and giving. And it, it's just, I think it's a, it's a, it's a long movie. You've got to invest some time, mm -hmm. but it is just, to me, it is just an amazing, for the time it was done, which I think was the forties. Forties. Yeah, I think yeah, so too. It, it's an amazing movie, beautifully done. His acting is, he, he took that old school remember back in, the, in those days those movies they all rapid fire they always talk like this see so what are we gonna do next see and you know it was, it was that kind of they thought that was a style of acting you know and every woman was like well why don't you come around and talk to me then you know like it was just kind of weird <laughs> it was like people were not really interacting that way out in public were they but on screen they were but he he had a couple of scenes in there and, and these these monologues he does that are so real and genuine and I think he kind of took acting to another level in that era, at least. He was kind of like the, I always see, I always say Tom Hanks is sort of our Jimmy Stewart and, and our right. Jimmy, and that's how I kind of feel about that. You know, it's funny you should mention that because not Tom Hanks, but uh, thinking about seeing old news footage mm -hmm. and the announcer always sounds, I think it was the same guy did everything back in the forties and fifties yeah, because everything deal. sounded the same. Right, you know, 1952 Korea. Uh, you know, the American soldiers marching upon. You know, it's it. You're right. It seemed like it was the same voice, but everybody tried to achieve that same sound. Even I think if so. It was different, and that's that's the irony, and that's how much the broadcasting industry really has evolved, because now almost to have your own voice and style and sound is more important than to sound like everyone else. You know what? And props to Howard Stern, uh, mm -hmm. who you just mentioned before, who was really you know, when you think back on the early part of his New York City, Washington, D.C. career back in the early 80s, he talked about how he was the antithesis of what everybody in radio sounded like. And everybody said, oh, you need to sound like this. And, you need to, and he said, no, I have a terrible voice. I shouldn't be on the radio, but this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. And to his credit, he really helped kind of break the mold a lot. Yeah. No, he, he stuck to himself. And, but it's funny because if you ever see the movie Private Parts in the beginning, you, know, mm -hmm. you, you can watch him trying to be a DJ and right. have that sound of like, especially music stations, but you know, obviously evolved into something much more unique and, and created almost his own genre that other people now try to be him, that type of thing. But yeah, to think outside of the box, to stay with it, to have the confidence to stay with it. Yeah, that, that's kind of important. But let's get back to the, the Christmas theme, by the way. The okay. Christmas shows. So do you have a particular favorite, uh, one of those classics that, that you uh, like? Yeah, I guess, first of all, I love anything Peanuts Christmas mm -hmm. um, or any holiday for that matter. But I, th I think it's still probably Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Hmm. 
Okay. I always like the abominable snowman. Snowman. <laughs> well, you know, the whole collection of misfits and that whole thing. And, and, you know, Herbie doesn't want to make toys and he wanted to be a dentist and not an elf. And, uh, but there's something in that movie that for some reason as a kid, now I always remember from as long as I can think back to maybe first, second grade, I was a, a lover of snow. So the scene in that movie where the blizzard comes and I mean, it was, it was always so exciting to me. And, and it really, to me, when that show came on, which by the way, back in the days when we were growing up, it was on one time and right. one time only. You didn't right. get it on every weekend. You couldn't get it on 16 other stations. See you next year. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't on demand. If you missed it, you missed it. Right, until next year. So it really had value and importance. And it was like a big thing when it was going to be on. You, you allotted time. Nope, can't be out that night. Can't go shopping that. We've got Rudolph on at eight o'clock. And as I watched it, as I got older, now there's a scene in there yeah. that where Rudolph is very young and, and, and Donner covers his nose with that little black rubber piece or whatever. But then <laughs> the muzzle, the, whatever, the, the snuzzle, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and he then kind of hits it off with Clarice, the, the, the young uh, uh, doe there. And uh, he's all excited and, he, and she thinks I'm cute. And he starts jumping in the air and he, oh, and they're all looking, oh my goodness, look at this young buck. He can fly already. And, and then all the buddies are coming near him and, you know, congratulating him and they knock the little piece off his nose. Yeah, they headbutt him. They right. high-fived him. They high-fived him. And it falls off. And then, of course, the nose is wink, wink, and it glows. And everybody's freaking out. And Santa was there observing. Santa. Santa Claus. The Santa Claus. The nice, the Santa Claus. Yes, the nice giving Santa Claus, you know, with the ho-ho-ho and the, and the big belly and the nice white beard. And he turns to Donner and he says, oh, Donner, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's a shame. And I, later in life, I'm thinking, he should be ashamed of himself that his son has, quote unquote, a disability, a, a, disability, <laughs> a red nose, which then P.S., by the way, who does Santa need when the fog rolled in? Oh, Rudolph. Yeah, why, why don't you leave my sleigh tonight? Because I have fog. And that's where Rudolph should have turned in my version. You know what, Santa? Take your Screw sleigh, you. Take your reindeer and you know where to put them. <laughs> Get a spotlight on your sleigh and you take care of business. I'm out. But it's kind of... But, but again, to that point, you know, the, the sensitivity level, there are different things that I noticed in, in different movies. And, and I'll ask you that question if there's something that strikes you that way. There's even a scene in It's a Wonderful Life where the housekeeper, who was a black female, which was traditional back in those days, I guess, and, and, and customary. And one of the sons is kind of teasing with her and they run her into the kitchen. And as she's running to the kitchen, he just gives her a smack on her butt. And it's just like that, that would never fly today. That was so degrading, you know, like, yeah, we're talking to her, but she's still the help and she's, she's black and we're white and I can smack her on the ass. It was, oh my God. And it was in the movie. And it's just like, that wasn't even thought of as being in it. And, and you just start to see how we've evolved and realized the, some of the behavior that was acceptable. It's like, listen, I wouldn't, Santa. I wouldn't have even smacked Alice of the Brady Bunch on her ass. No. Well, walking into the kitchen. Because she would have smacked you right back. Sam the butcher. She would have called Sam the butcher or clocked you over the head with a rolling pin. That's what she would have done. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, some of the other, I, I, I love the Grinch, the original. Just oh, the Grinch is great. Grinch. Uh, you know, Frosty's okay. By uh, the way, your little dog that you just got, little Tula, yes. is like is like the little 
dog on the Grinch's team. Yeah, that, I get that dog looks like sort of a pseudo dachshund mix in the Grinch. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, same short legs. My favorite scene is when he's going down the hill and he's going so fast he passes the dog, which we're supposed yeah. to, and the dog hops on the back and then waves to him. And he looks <laughs> like, uh, but that, that's a and that's a cute, quick half hour. Uh, yeah, but that was another show that always struck me as when this is on now the holiday season has begun. So speaking of which, what do we have here, Rick? What what what, what kind of a holiday season are we are we talking about? It's kind of weird. Well, yeah, I think it's perfect for 2020. Remember the good old days when 2020 was just a TV show with Barbara Walters? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, should have, it should have stayed there. <laughs> yeah, I wish it had. Yeah. Um, honestly, um, I don't know. This is such a weird holiday on so many different levels, and I'm certainly not breaking any new ground by saying that, but I think I'll kind of be glad when we get past it mm. and all the expectations you know, it's the only thing I say to you about, you know, you can't look in the rearview mirror too long because you have to look at over the hood of the car to see what's coming at you. You can't spend too much time glancing back. This is always a time of year that we glance back, whether it be on the year or Christmas has passed. And I used to love Christmas. Um, I remember I grew up in a Jewish household, but we always had a Christmas tree. And one year, my parents decided not to get a Christmas tree, and I felt deprived. I felt sad. Mm. And I remember Christmas Eve going out with a saw and cutting down <laughs> a tree branch. <laughs> and a I branch. put it, I, I, a big branch. And big I Charlie Brownish of you. <laughs> exactly. And I put it in, you know, in its setting in front of the fireplace. So when my parents came down on Christmas morning, and saw this thing there, my mom burst into tears because she felt that she had totally usurped my Christmas wishes by not getting a tree. Wow. Um, and that is one of my memories wow. of being, and that I, I was probably 15 years old. So it wasn't that, like I was a little kid. Right, right. So that was like your uh, Chris Monica tree, uh, kind of a Christmas Hanukkah thing. Chris Monica. Chris Monica, <laughs> Chris Monica tree. But you know, to, to that point, which is interesting and, and you know, this, I'm, I'm not bringing this topic up to make it controversial. Um, it's just a social uh, question I have that, okay, so you were raised Jewish, but, and I know a lot of my Jewish friends who still pseudo celebrate Christmas. What does Christmas mean to you? Or what did it mean to you growing up as a Jewish child and young man, but yet still wanted to be part of it and celebrate it? Why did you why did you not say, hey, that's for the, the, the Gentiles and I'm Jewish and that's that and that's, you know. You know, I, because I think a psychologist would have a field day with this. For me, it was wanting to feel like I belonged and fit in and not wanting to fly in the face of conventionality. For me, all my friends celebrated Christmas. We had a Christmas chorus concert at my high school and I got caught up in that and almost to the chagrin of our other relatives that we had a Christmas tree. Not that I was dissing Hanukkah right. and the importance of it. Cause actually we had both. Mm-hmm. I double dipped. <laughs> <laughs> if double I can borrow from dipper. Seinfeld. Look at you. Yeah. yeah. But no, but it's interesting uh, because Christmas became a, a much larger entity. Yeah. 
being a religious holiday, whereas Hanukkah has sort of stayed within itself as being a religious holiday. Whether or not that's because obviously there's a larger amount of, of, of Christians and Catholics in the world, or who got the jump on it? I have no idea. Who got the jump on it? Yeah, I mean, Christmas sort of became, hey, well, it is. It's a whole commercial product. It's it's no longer, you know, people try to step back and get back into what Christmas was. But what I liked about and, and still like about Christmas in general is it's it's not a holiday per se. I mean, that's, what's, that's where it spawned from, a religious happening, which some will say didn't happen on December 25th. But... Uh, meaning Christ was born, but it is a great time or season where we tend to socially feel better connected. We, we, we seem to want to celebrate life and each other more. And that's to me, the real value of the Christmas season. Uh, people in general, <laughs> in general, they're in better moods. They feel more festive. Maybe they're a little more reflective about the things that they have that, that, that are important to them. It's, it, it was always a nice time of the year in, in regard. And it, it looks beautiful. Things are, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if we threw up lights on things in, I don't know, August 2nd, uh, <laughs> March 16th. Hey, let's throw some lights up and light up the, you know, it, it's, to me, it was always, it's just, it's beautiful. It's festive. And it, that's where it got disconnected somewhat from, the religious aspect of it, but I still don't think that's a terrible thing. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't have a problem with it. Listen, when I got out of college in the early eighties uh, and I set up an apartment for myself out on Long Island at my first radio job, it was very important to me to get my own first Christmas tree uh, to the point where I got this tree. I left it up for an entire year. A live Christmas tree. I'm going to say fire code. Fire code. That's safe. Yeah. Will Robinson, we have a we yeah. have a warning. 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 Oh. Danger. So my friends would come over for Fourth of July and see my Christmas tree at this point, <laughs> tinderbox <laughs> and yeah. brown, because I stopped watering it probably in January. Oh my god. Um, they would see my Christmas tree, and all I could think of was the following December. In 1983, when I did get a new Christmas tree, but I had to take the old light up one out and put it in the garbage. And I thought about my neighbors looking at that and saying, boy, this guy got a really bad tree. Yeah. He picked a, he picked a bad tree. It's dead already. And it's yeah, December right. 16th. Yeah, that's pretty. Well, let me ask you, this. did you leave the ornaments on the tree that whole time? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's, yeah. No, I wish I, you, you don't have any pictures of that. I would love to see a picture. I definitely do. I will send you one. I have to see pictures of that. But that's, that's yeah, cool. no, I definitely do. And I, I think part of it was at that point, I was going through some real uh, growth changes in my life. And I wanted to keep a familiar, warm, cozy feeling of what Christmas meant to me, mm -hmm. even going through college. And then my first Christmas sat on Long Island. I don't think I wanted to jettison it. And then it just became kind of a joke like right. coming over to my house after softball games in July of 83. And people would come up and say, oh, wow, you still have your Christmas tree up? That's just crazy. That's what can I say? I, I thought you were nuts, but now I, I, I see that uh, it started many, many years ago. This, I'm uh, nostalgic. It's, it's uh, nuts is uh, the clinical, uh, I think. Exactly. So another thing that happened this week, this past week, and, and something that ties into the Christmas season and always as a kid, for me, the big thing was, boy, 
is it could we get a white Christmas? And a lot of people think growing up in New York, it's cold, it's the winter. Many movies that are shot around the Christmas season in New York always show there being snow, it's snowing, there's snow on the sidewalk. But the fact of the matter is, very rarely does that actually happen. It's like about right. 25% of the time. Does, and for it to actually even snow on Christmas Day is, is, is very, very rare in New York City. Uh, but we had a, an early season snowfall uh, just a few days ago this week. You know, we, you and I were talking about as it was approaching, and I had said to you, I'm actually kind of excited about this because last winter, which was my first winter, not being in the weather industry in any shape or form, whether it would be television or radio, in probably, gosh, 35 years of my life that I was going to be home like a regular person watching a big snowstorm impact uh, New York City and the tri-state area. So I was kind of excited about it because last winter we didn't get anything. So, right. uh, you know, it, it was kind of, uh, it, was, it was an interesting thing for me. But you had some, some thoughts about that. Well, I wanted to ask you if it was bittersweet. I mean, did you feel like uh, you were on the bench and the uh, coach put somebody else in and that you were no longer, I don't want to say part of the team, but uh, uh -huh. certainly the lead storyteller? Was yeah, that well, okay? Yeah, you know, oddly enough, um, as I was watching leading up to it and then during it, I watched, I watched various weathercasters and, you know, I made my own little commentary about some things as I always do. Um, I'm my worst critic too, trust me, but but I, I, I kind of scrutinize others. But I really didn't feel like, oh man, I wish I was there. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why the main reason, because my wiring to having become a meteorologist came from childhood, from falling in love with snowstorms and the impact that they had on, on my world outside my front door, how things could come to a screeching halt. It was a big storm in 1969 where the street in front of my house and the main avenues right around my home were covered in snow, became like almost playgrounds, winter, winter wonderland playgrounds. Right. And, and my wiring then, of course, became, well, I'm really interested in this, but I was a snow lover. And I was a snow lover from an emotional standpoint because it made me feel a certain way. It brought joy to me. But as you get into the business and suddenly, you know, the media hype for every time there's going to be a flake that hits the ground and we have to have wall-to-wall -wall coverage and, and you're on for 12 to 14 hours in a, in a studio. where kind all of loses I'm, a little of its luster, huh? Yeah. All I'm seeing is imagery through a television screen of reporters out in the field, and I'm pouring over weather maps and radars and satellites. And that's fun to a point. I found more fun trying to forecast it accurately. Once it was hitting, I wanted to be out in it. I wanted to be out playing in it. Some wow. of my greatest, most enjoyable moments on television were covering snowstorms when I worked in Scranton. They'd send me up to the top of Mount Cobb to do a live shot for their 10 and 11 o'clock newscast. And I'd come out and make, I'm live and partially frozen here in Mount Cobb and <laughs> coated in snow, but I was out in it. I was out in it. And that was the fun part. So, you know, very long answer to your question. No, I didn't, I didn't miss it. I didn't feel like I was, I wasn't part of something that I used to be part of, um, which is good, I guess. I think it's great. And I think it speaks um, really uh, without being, too clinical and too corny speaks to your growth. It's kind of like been there, done that, happy to have moved on and happy I did it. And I did it and I did it in a, in a big place and I did it in my hometown. And uh, that's kind of how I felt after I left radio. People ask me all the time, don't you miss being on the air during these times of need or times that the public reaches out to rely on 
whatever word it is that you need to get out to the public about safety or you know uh, forecasting issues or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I don't miss that at all. I am much happier sitting on my couch with a little glass of wine or a big glass of wine mm-hmm. and okay. uh, just watching it come down. And the snow this time, and I feel bad for people who are tuning into middle-aged warriors who don't have the joy of seeing a fresh, good snowfall. And it seems like a long time since we've had one, but this was beautiful. And I loved, loved, loved waking up uh, Thursday, I guess it was Friday morning. I can't remember the the chronology. It was Thursday morning. And and waking up and seeing the chronology of uh, the snowfall, hearing the snow plows outside, seeing, I'm looking at my, my, balcony window now and I see a foot of snow on our you know a couple months ago we were having our our barbecues out on the balcony and now it's just covered in snow and just beautiful and uh and I wondered about it for you um whether or not you would be feeling pangs and kind of like wow that used to be me Mm -hmm. and it sounds to me like you're saying wow that used to be me and that's okay that it used to be me yeah, you know, and, and and to be honest, I mean, I still, we did a couple of things. Uh, there's another meteorologist from this market in New York, has been around for years, and, he, and he's still, and I worked with him at NBC for almost a dozen years, and he occasionally fills in on the CBS affiliate here, but we, when there are big storms, we like to get together, we do these Facebook live uh, updates, and it was great. I got to sit there, talk about the weather, talk to people, interact with them live, with my new puppy on my lap, a glass of wine next to me. He had a more looking good. I'm like this is the way weather should be done. This is the way to do it. Um, and and we had a blast. And a friend of mine who works at WFAN Radio in New York asked me to just come on one of the shows, one of the afternoon shows with Mark Belusis, and we just you know sh- shoot the you know what about about the storm. But it was it was nice because it was clearly defined. I didn't have to repeat myself 40, 50 times a day or every five minutes. I didn't have people up my butt. You know, how many inches are we going to get here? How about over here? How about over there? And, you know, say this, say that. The micromanaging, it's so nice to be in control of it yourself now. You and I used to have this talk years ago um, before you left NBC and before I uh, left my job at the Screen Actors Guild. Um, we would talk about the micromanaging of these situations um, and how the hype, the sizzle really became the story, not the stake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so if you were grading New York media as watching and listening this time, how did they do? Um, I would say, and I think part of what happened here is you, you still have to realize this storm came in the midst of the second wave of this deadly pandemic. So even in a weird way, well, if you turned on any local news station here, when that storm was hitting, the storm led, led the right. virus, which in reality to me is still kind of silly, because, but we're so burnt out about yeah. COVID anyway. Um, but I think they did okay. It was the usual, though. Uh, there were people that started getting information. I'm not going to name names, but there's, there's a level of responsibility you have to take when you go out and you present numbers to people, meaning 16 inches, 18 inches. Just because one computer model generated 30 inches of snow somewhere, you have to be careful how you put that out there on the air. 
I saw some guy trying to do math on the air and he's like, well, uh, picture this, uh, look at this. It's going to snow for 16 hours and it's snowing at the rate of two inches per hour. So, and I'm thinking, is he going to say now we're going to get 32 inches of snow? But he couldn't even do that because he couldn't figure out the math. So he went, you know, he goes, you know, you could figure that out. That's a lot of snow. And I'm like, wow, what, like, what, what are you doing? You, you can't, but there's a lot of misstated things. And the problem, I've always said this about weather relative to anything else in a newscast, it's probably the most verifiable story that you will see in a newscast, meaning- at your window. Yeah. Right. You're telling me the mayor's sleeping with a goat. I don't know. I'm not going to be in the mayor's bedroom. I'm not going to ask the goat. I'm not going to find that goat. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so whatever. Those stories, I'm, I'm assuming the reporters are going out there gaining facts and the information I'm getting is factual and truth. I'm assuming that, although that's a dangerous thing to do these days as well. But I say there's going to be 10 inches of snow in midtown Manhattan and you walk out the street, midtown Manhattan is two inches. Well, you know, I, that's wrong. <laughs> that was a bad forecast. And that's the thing. It's verifiable. So you can't, you can't blow it up. And then after you're wrong, walk away and go, oh, well, oops. <laughs> have, you ever had, have you ever had to do that on the air? Oh, gosh. Uh, there have been, you know, there, there were some cases that I had. There was one case in particular when I wasn't even television. I was working in radio and it was a private weather service. And we had companies. We had Aqueduct Racetrack, which was a big horse racing track in, in New York at the time. And they were one of our clients and they were relying on our forecast. And we had the snowstorm that was coming and we were expecting anywhere from like six to 12 inches of snow. They closed down the track before the first flake fell. We had other businesses that closed down. We had people like plowing companies calling in people. P.S. Not a flake, not a flake reached the ground. It was so cold and dry. It was snowing overhead. Planes were landing with snow on their wings. It never reached the ground. It got to central New Jersey, about a foot of snow. And I felt terrible for days after that. So there have been some major busts. And that's why towards the end of my career, I wasn't afraid to say, this is the forecast, but this is a low confidence forecast. And that's just being honest and letting people know, hey, he's saying this, but boy, he's indicating this could really you know, crap out. Or I'll say, this is what we're expecting. And I'm telling you, this is a high confidence forecast. I just want to tell you that uh, I went to school, college in central New York. I went to school in Ithaca and used to drive up to Rochester, which is uh, another couple hours north and west of Ithaca. And Rochester, certainly in the snow belt of central New York. Um, I looked out the window on uh, Thursday morning and saw what looked like a foot of snow outside our window here in Westchester County, New York. And I saw that Binghamton in central New York had 30 more inches of snow than we had. Mm -hmm. They had 42 inches of snow. Yeah, I think uh, Binghamton, Endicott, uh, New York, which is right next to it, all right. Tri City area, there were 40 inch to 45 inch totals out of this same storm. So think and that about wasn't it. just drifting. That no, was, no, no. That was actual fall. Yeah which was, so imagine if this storm had shifted its track a little further south and east and we would have been in that band, uh, you know, so, so eight to 10 inches or a foot, and depends upon where you were in this vicinity, seemed like a lot. That's almost unfathomable. What do you do? Where do you put 40 inches of snow when you start to move it off the streets? I mean, that's, that's the next issue. But, um, you know, again, these are the things, these are the challenges in a, in a forecast. And, you know, when you're forecasting for a large area, there are people watching in a lot of different places 
and their weather and their snowfall totals are going to be different. And trying to convey each person as to what they're going to get in their backyard is a very, very difficult thing to do. I'm going to draw a really interesting analogy here, and that's kind of like coronavirus, where mm-hmm. if you talk to 10 different people, you'll hear 10 different stories, sure. um, depending upon where they are, depending depending upon how your immune system uh, has been treated throughout your life, how well you've treated it. Yeah. And uh, it's certainly, I don't mean to minimize the importance of coronavirus, but certainly, I mean, we're amazed at hearing the stories. By the way, I did want to ask you, do you know anybody that's gotten inoculated? I do not. Not at, not at this point. Um, I don't really, I don't know any frontline people that I could think of directly, and I don't know of anyone else. I mean, now my mom is 86 years old, mm-hmm. and she's not sure if she wants to actually get the inoculation. So, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real slippery slope for some people, depending upon their age and, and what group they're in. And to, but going back to your point, by the way, about perspective on this, and it's very true that we can turn on any CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and see the numbers, and the you know they're ridiculous. And the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths—it's all horrific. It seems overwhelming. But then, if you're in a in your bubble where not much has happened close to you, you think this isn't so bad. I don't even know anybody. Oh, I know, I know three people who got it. They've all quickly recovered from it. I don't know anybody, knock on wood, thank God, that that got sick to the point where they had to be hospitalized. And I certainly don't know anybody, you know, that immediate that lost their lives. Uh, But then it trickles out. and, And when it gets bigger, I do know people who have lost their lives. But think about somebody who in their own, I mean, we've heard cases within their own immediate family, four people in the same family wiped out, killed by this thing they must feel like this is the plague. This is the worst thing that's ever, ever happened. That's why the perspective, it's hard to convince somebody in another part of the country who hasn't been impacted to think, oh, it's not, it's not that bad. And, and, you know, I was speaking to a friend yesterday and she had a friend who said, oh, you know, this is just a flu and it's just a, I don't know what they're making a big deal about. Well, come on, you, you can't. You can't allow yourself to be that ignorant. Yes, it's a flu. It's a virus like the flu is, but that's kind of where it ends, the similarities. It's, yeah. it's, it's a much bigger demon right now that we're dealing with. But it's By personal. the way, you're listening to Middle Aged Warriors on the Believe Podcast Network. Chris and Rick are right here with you. And this is just kind of an informal, almost year-end wrap-up, but it's not really our year-end wrap-up. No, we have one more. We have one more to do. Yes, we have one more to do on that. Yeah, but uh, this is just a couple of guys sitting around, uh, I was going to say having coffee, but uh, coffee hour has already passed, and now it's almost time for happy hour to start on the bourbon and the wine. I'm going to work on that one shortly. Um, but let's uh, let's uh, end this on a on a on an up note or fun note um, for you. And I'll ask both holidays, Hanukkah, Christmas. Is there a particular food or dessert or something that was associated with those holidays that you like? I think about, and this is just comes out of left field, pecan pie. Still, Hmm. not Thanksgiving. Uh, That's not Thanksgiving. That's Christmas for you, or yeah, because my aunt used to bake pies for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Okay, um, and she used to make the most outrageous uh, pecan pies. It's not Kugel. uh, No Kugel for you. No what? Kugel? Kugel? No. 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 No No, Cabelta fish. 
No. No, not, not, not at this time of year. That's generally Rosh Hashanah. Or oh, it's Rosh Hashanah. That's right. So what, what is yeah. in Hanukkah? Is there anything particular that a uh, food that was associated with that? I'm going to just wear my bad Jew stripes <laughs> here and say, I don't know. Oh, they're going to pull the card on you again now. That's see, it. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be banished. Wow. Well, from from my perspective, being Italian, of course, on Christmas Eve, it's the, the fishes, the, yeah, seven fishes, and and uh, my mother-in-law, for some reason, consistently, and I don't know how she did it, I've never been able to do it. I've made a couple of attempts. It's a very simple dish. It's just linguine and clam sauce, white clam sauce. But man, I don't know. Every year, it was just amazing and perfect. That was the opener. Then you'd have the seafood salad. Then you'd have the calamari, scungili on the biscotti with the tomato sauce. Then you had the fried shrimp, fried flounder. It was just, you know, a fish-a-thon. And then you had an angioplasty. Uh, oh my God. And then Christmas comes. But actually for me, I really loved, and it's not done every year, but I, I love lasagna. I love the Christmas dinner lasagna. And mm. uh, that's something I, I kind of look forward to. So I'm, I'm hoping I can put something like that together. If I do, you might get the leftovers, Rick. All right. Sounds good. They're able to come by. But, um, you know, everybody out there, I hope they've already enjoyed their Hanukkah and will continue to enjoy the rest of the holiday season towards the new year. And those celebrating Christmas, uh, stay safe, be smart, enjoy yourselves as best as you can. And uh, there will be much better holidays, I think, ahead for all of us. I saw a great closing line on CBS News last night. I think Nora O'Donnell said, stay safe, test negative, be positive. Mm. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of good. Good job, Nora. Hats off. Thank to you, her. Nora. Mr. Rick, I'm going to say sunshine always. I'm going to say be good, feel good, Merry Christmas, and talk to you on the flip side. Odie ho ho! Jingle bells. Donner, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Fuck you, Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five stars, no begging. Uh, we're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.